This morning we celebrate the eighth anniversary of Christ Church Vienna. And each, yes, it's very, very exciting. Um, I find that it's a really good opportunity for me because I'm not very good at remembering or thanking. Um, and it's the weeks leading up to it, I'm, I stop and have to be thankful. And that's, that's a good thing, right? Um, and I was thinking through this past week and the week before in prayer and reflection on all the people that have been a part of this church through the years and how thankful I am for the different lives, some of whom I've known closer and uh, less close and people who are no longer with us, people who have left this church to go on to other ones, people who have moved, people who have died, people who have been little and now are teenagers and teenagers who have now graduated from college and new little ones that didn't exist before that are now here running around and making trouble. And it's just such a gift when you think about the people that have influenced your life and the lives that you've been able to influence just because of being in a place, being a part of a community. And that is such a gift to look back and thank God for every single person, in the minor, in the major, in the small, in the behind the scenes, and the people that influenced who this church became from the beginning and continue to influence it through their service and commitment to us as a community. I've been thankful as well for the impact that this church has had on my life, my family's life, and on people that I love and care about around me. Um, I've seen the impact on high school kids who have come to faith in Christ, on friends who didn't want to go near the church but have entered in, to people that um, have just grown in their faith in different ways. And of course, as a result of that, I'm thankful for God's faithfulness because through it all, you see the good hand of the sovereignty of God, that he is with us, he has been with us, and his purposes will be achieved. And we can trust him in that and not have fear moving forward. And so I'm thankful looking back on God's faithfulness. This morning, we're going to do two things. One is we're going to look at the scripture passages that were read, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11 and Matthew 5, as we get a vision of what the church should not be and what it should be. And we'll use that as a backdrop to understand our own identity and calling, some of what has come out of the summer of discernment and where we think God is leading us, as well as just what he's revealed in who we are and how we can live into that more fully. So I'm going to offer another prayer as we enter in this morning to seek God through his word and his calling for us by his spirit. Lord, enter into this space once again. You have brought us to this place, to this day, to celebrate and remember, but also to push us forward. We want to follow you in all that we do, and so open our hearts and minds to receive what you would give us this day and give us the courage and boldness to follow you individually and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So first we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is uh, we've been in this series on Corinthians looking at cultivating community and that that's one of the big thrusts of our church in general over the coming years. But what's going on particularly in this passage is that there is relational breakdown in Corinth and it's, it's around the worship service, the Lord's Supper and their potluck dinners or some version thereof. I'm gonna read or reread some of these verses. Paul says, look, when I hear that you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you spise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So it sounds like a real mess, but here's the basic idea of what's going on. 
What's going on is that there is division in the church that is based on status and hierarchy in a culture that was very status conscious. Everyone was aware of who was high status and who was low status. And what they were doing was living it out when they gathered together as the church. They were living out what they had done for centuries, for decades, for years in their own communities and lives. And what they were doing was what they would come together and it's not clear, it's, it's probably a church service, but their church service was some uh, metal, missing together pieces of, of the Lord's Supper and like a potluck supper, okay? And what would happen is you didn't have church in, in an auditorium or your own church building, you had it in somebody's home, which usually meant a rich person had to host it because they would have the big enough house. So as they were gathering, whether it was the Lord's Supper they were trying to do or they were just having a potluck, all the rich and the high status would be in certain, a certain area where all the couches were inside. The poor and lower status members of the church would sit out in the atrium, the open atrium, kind of like the patio outside. And the rich would have their meal and celebrate and drink, and some of the poor were out there not having eaten for a day or two. Part of the same church, like that's their worship service. And Paul says, this is not okay. And we say, of course, that's not okay, but they were doing what was absolutely normal for them. The Greek and Roman world had carried on this idea of what was called the symposium. A symposium was a, a gathering in a public setting or in somebody's house to eat, drink, and have somebody tell philosophical tales. So you would get together as the rich in somebody's home at a symposium. You would, the host would provide a great meal. You would taste some of the best wines and you would discuss the wines. And then you would have somebody get up and give a philosophical talk, and then you would debate it, and other things would happen, and the, only the rich were invited into these things. So as they gathered together as the church, they just did what they were used to doing. It was culturally normative. There was nothing they were doing that would have been seen as strange in Corinth or in the Greek and Roman world. But as a result, what they were doing was desecrating, belittling the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, right? The bread and the wine at the communion table is a proclamation, as Paul says, of the death of Christ. The cross is a great equalizer. Paul in Galatians says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ. It's not that you aren't high status or low status or that you aren't Jewish or Greek or male or female. It's that those no longer matter for your standing before God and they should not matter for how you view each other in value and in worth. The church, Paul is saying, was meant to be counter to the culture's norms. A countercultural community based on God's kingdom and not the world's. Jesus is talking about that in the other passage that we read in Matthew chapter five. The Sermon on the Mount is often talked about as Jesus kind of declaring the kingdom of God to everyone. I've come, the kingdom of God is here, and here's the ethos of my kingdom. And he lays out, the first part is, is the Beatitudes, but when a kingdom, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this is my kingdom, and then Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is laying out the ethos, the, the identity of those in the kingdom and what they should be like, what they should value. What he's doing is saying, I've come to bring a new administration. So when a president gets elected in our country, they bring in a new administration. Their values 
what they emphasize, how they run things, is different than the previous administration, and everyone knows it. Some of you have experienced that in a workplace where new leadership comes in and they throw out some of the values of the old and they they establish new objectives, new criteria, right? And you have to understand as a worker, there's a new administration. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus comes in and says, okay, there's a new administration. It is not the administration of the religious people in Jerusalem based on the temple nor is it the administration of Caesar and the power of Rome. It's mine. It's the kingdom of God. And here's the values of my kingdom. In verses three through five of Matthew five, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now, these seem very natural to us when we hear them, but in that ancient world, that was completely counter to everything they understood and valued. They were a status-conscious culture. They wanted recognition by others. They don't want to be poor in spirit. They don't want to be lowly. To be somebody who is mourning is, is to be sad, is to, is to suffer. You don't want to suffer. Suffering means God's not blessing you in some of the ways that they thought about things. They wanted to be high status and recognized as such. And Jesus comes along and says, no, meek, poor in spirit, the opposite of what you think is normal and valuable. And then in verses 10 through 12, he pushes it even further. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you if people revile you for my name. In a culture that valued honor and respect. You wanted to walk down the street and have everybody say, oh, it's that guy. He says, if you follow me and my values, you're going to be rejected, reviled, and persecuted. They wanted nothing to do with that. What's happening is Jesus is setting up an alternative kingdom a different set of values altogether. One commentator, Michael Wilcock, put it this way, God's people will display a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. What does our culture think desirable? Success, fame, independence and autonomy, doing what I want. Now what this is saying is not, is not saying that uh, you should avoid success, okay? Or that, um, you know, like if, if you have, uh, if you get popular in some way for something that you've done, it, it's, you, should, you should hide from that, reject that. It's not reject the values of the culture, it's suspect them. Recognize that they do not offer what they claim to be offering. Nor are they the starting point or the end point of our lives. So whether you have success or you don't, whether in some areas you are free or in others you are interdependent, you are free. Jesus is talking about an upside-down kingdom. You want to be great in my kingdom? Be servant of all. You want to save your life? You got to lose it. 
die to self. Then you will find life. Jesus is proclaiming a culture of humility and grace and love that differs from that culture in Corinth and from every culture. And that's why he goes on uh, a little bit later to talk about how the church, the people of God, are meant to be a light, a lamp, a city on a hill. They are meant, according to Matthew 5, 14 to 16, to be a light, a lamp, and a city on a hill. And that, that one city on a hill, I want to hit on that one for just a moment, right? So in that ancient world, you know what they did not have? They didn't have electricity. And the way that their cities, their villages, their towns were built were actually very compact and close together. So there was a lot of land outside of any city or village or town that would have been what you farmed or grazed your sheep or cattle on or would have just been wasteland and desert. And in that ancient world, you could light by candlelight or fire or lamp, right? But if you were out away from the city, you could be in utter and total darkness, we also have this sense that cities are dangerous places. That's, you know, this cultural narrative from 30, 40 years ago. But in that ancient world, being out apart from the city was the dangerous place. That was where the robbers were hiding. That's where the animals were. That's where exposure and death happened. So in that ancient world, if you were walking along as a shepherd out in the field and you came to your city, you could see it from a distance. And it was a place of hope that you were heading towards. If you were a traveler miles from home in the complete dark, you knew that you could die at any moment, exposure, but then you would see the city and think of it as a place of hospitality, of safety, of refuge. Cities lit up on the hill could be seen for miles and miles in that dark world. And Jesus is saying that's who you are to be. You, the church, are to be that city on a hill and, and what's interesting is, I think actually what he's getting at is that you were to be an alternate city inside whatever city God has placed you. To be a seen city means other people can actually see it. So it's not, hey, all of you go off and hide in the caves and be a light. It's your light needs to be seen by those around you. So he's actually saying be a city on a hill inside of whatever city God has placed you. A counterculture of love and hope. Because the light that you're pointing people to is not your own. No person or church is meant to be like, hey, yeah, you should, you should we want everyone to see how awesome we are, you know? Like, oh yeah, that's the church that has the guy who always looks so good on a Sunday up front. That's the one you want to go to, right? It's not wowing people and drawing them to us. The light is your inner motivation, and light always in Scripture is God. God is the drive, the motivation, the aim, and what anyone sees or is drawn to. It is the source of light and hope. But in Corinth, the church was not a light, it was not a refuge. And it was, in fact, a place of despair for the poor and lowly who were pushed out and humiliated. Which is why, at the end of the section in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains the, the Lord's Supper again to them in case they can't remember what it's about. 
says, you know what happened. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus took bread. He took wine. But what was he doing? He was enacting a sacrament, a covenantal meal, pointing to his death the next day on a cross. Meals, communal meals in the ancient world were covenantal. They bound people together as brothers and sisters, as family. And Jesus, on that night before his death, is saying, this is the meal of this covenantal family. It is a meal of death. Who's in? You are the community that proclaims the cross. Everything about you should reveal and proclaim the cross. This is who you're to be. Are you in? When we started Christ Church Vienna eight years ago, we started with a vision and values. It was actually based on that idea of being a cross-centered people. We let that push us forward and look out and say, who are we called to be uniquely? And we laid out a set of vision and values that was gospel-driven, cross, cross, the death of Christ, humility and grace, gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. And we have continued to live that out and see how that plays out in our daily lives and our communal life. This summer, we, we, we kind of broke into that, not to throw that out, but to say, we, where is God calling us to now in this next season as a church? We started on our summer of discernment. And most of you know that the impetus for that summer of discernment was we became aware, our leadership became aware of a church property, Faith Baptist, that might possibly be available for sale. And while we had been very happy and have been happy here at, at Madison, we've said, okay, what is God, is this an opportunity that God is calling us to? But in order to answer that question as a church, you have to ask, who are we? What is our identity and what is our calling? And so we have sought to seek God collectively in that process. We have not actually made a final decision on that, and that's also not just dependent on us, you know that. There's, we have to figure out who we are and where God is calling us, but also there's, a, a church is a messy thing. I don't know if you know that. It doesn't run like a business. It, it, it isn't a, uh, a military campaign. <laughs> it is people collectively seeking God and collectively seeking to follow him. The objectives of a church are not as measurable as they are in some business worlds. We want to serve God and follow him. We are committed to being in Vienna long term, and so we are committed to this place, this community. We want to be for this place, not just borrowing time, not just here until something better comes. And I don't just mean Madison, I mean in the community of Vienna, in this area. And the question we are asking, which we ask about everything, is, is Faith Baptist, if it does become fully available, is this the way to fulfill God's purposes for us? Or is there something else? And one of the things we continue to do is to seek God, to trust God, to wait on the Lord, and to pursue his purposes. And I'm grateful for you guys for your uh, patience and engagement in this process and commitment to do this well, to be the church seeking God and fulfilling his purposes. 
This discernment process led us this summer to go through a whole process where all of us were seeking God using that Exodus devotional and the Exodus sermon series. We had a series of trainings on how to seek God and listen to him, and then we had people sharing what God was saying to them, and it was really powerful. It was neat to hear how when we said, instead of just let's, what is our church called to do, how does God wanna speak to you, that you guys engage that, and people were super encouraged by it. One of the things we heard again and again is, let's keep doing this. Let's keep seeking God. Let's keep listening to him. Let's discern his purposes in our lives individually and our lives together. We want more of this. But as we have culled through what God has laid out about who we are as a church, here's some of what we have heard. One of the things, uh, one whole area is our identity. What is our ethos? What is Christ Church Vienna? And the word that kept coming up from you guys and from our leadership was welcoming. The Christ Church Vienna, our ethos, our identity includes being a friendly, joyful, and warm place. People who are new to CCV feel welcomed. They feel like this is a place they can enter easily. But it's also even more than that, or, or another piece of that, is for those who are skeptical or unsure of Christianity. This welcoming has been that it is an approachable place. There's authenticity here. You all, we, have cultivated a welcoming and authentic place where you don't have to buy into everything, but if you wanna try to figure it out, you can come. We also saw collectively, that, and this is one of these ones that was a little more unique to us, I think, is that we as a church are a refuge. People put down language like haven, port, home, hospital, inn, Talking about this with some people, he said, what they experienced at Christ Church Vienna was a counter church culture, church culture. <laughs> that it is not as churchy as they had experienced in previous churches. And in that, it, for them, was a good thing. You know, we have not emphasized program, even as we've tried to add things to our, our calendar because of our proclamation of the gospel of grace, there's a freedom from, from a success, appearance, performance. It's pulled off the works and rules orientedness that some of you have experienced in churches. And I've found again and again people who have entered this church and found it restful to them for the first time after being in churches. But the other one that I've seen uh, you, almost uniquely in our church, being a part of many churches in leadership, is that people have come here, even for a time or for a longer time, because they have been burned or hurt by the church previously. People who left the church when they were kids or left the church as adults, they'd been hurt by it and they found they can finally trust the people of God again, maybe a little. Those who have been de-churched or hurt have been finding healing here. For whatever reason, that's part of our identity and therefore calling. And one of the ones that I've seen personally, or the one that the Spirit kept bringing to me was that I see our church as a confluence, an integrator, an intersection. I couldn't come up with a, uh, quite the word. If you've got one for me, give it to me later. But that we're a church that, um, while being Anglican, is able to cross out of denomination pretty easily. 
Do you know that of all the Anglican churches in Northern Virginia, I would say we have the widest array of people in terms of their denominational background from Christianity? We have Baptist and Bible Church and Charismatic and Presbyterian. We have people who are Reformed and Low Church, people who have uh, been in Catholic churches, people who have not been in church. That's more unusual than you would find in most denominationally affiliated churches. There's something in the way that we have been able to be a, a confluence. And even the way that we've had to rely on other churches, we have done services in Baptist churches and Lutheran churches and Methodist churches, and I've you know, co-celebrated something with a Catholic church and done something in a Presbyterian. And part of that is just approaching things with humility, recognizing the mystery of some of these things, emphasizing the truth, but with grace and humility. That confluence has also found its way in the way that we hold the sacred and secular a little more loosely, meaning we can do something sacred in a non-sacred place. <laughs> this is not, you know, part of our worship design. But God is here, isn't he? We can enter sacred space or secular space and see God moving, and I want you to do that in your lives to not make such a dichotomy, but recognize there is a liturgy in your ordinary, that there's a way that God wants to have you step into every aspect of life and be present with you and us as the people of God, wherever we go. These are things that are part of our ethos and identity. Humility and grace is what drives all of them to be welcoming, a refuge, a confluence. It's the gospel-driven centrality of the cross in us. We are gonna keep pushing the cross, keep pushing humility, keep pushing grace. You're gonna hear it again and again. Because what does the cross do? The cross puts us all on equal footing. It says, you are a sinner. So are you. So are you. So are all of you and me. And I'm not better. You're not better. We all are equally in need of the cross. And it is by grace that we enter in, not because of performance or our goodness. That humility, that grace will push us to be a welcoming refuge who's able to step in and out of the sacred and the secular. And people of all denominations or no church will find it a hopeful, hopeful place. Over the next 10 years, we're going to continue to do a lot of the things that churches do, things like small groups and worship and prayer and global missions and care and discipleship. But what are we uniquely called to do missionally? I think there are two areas that I've seen again and again, and you know what? These aren't going to be surprising to you, but sometimes that's the way God speaks. He says, hey, you know what you're already doing? Keep doing that. Continue in that faithfulness, but push stronger into it. And one of those areas that I see that God is calling us into is to cultivate community. That's why we started this sermon series called Extended Family, uh, uh, you know, kind of cultivating community, how we can extend, continue to be an extended family. And the way that we talk about this is there is a need for us to emphasize relationships. It is not natural to our modern world. And that means you and I having friends, friends within this community. And that means each of us finding three or six or ten people that we are really close to. But also having enough of a village of 30 to 50 people that know you here. We need to push as individuals into friendship, emphasizing relationships. 
It is an absolute need in our culture today and for most of us. We have a relationship deficit. More people, we've talked about this, live alone than have ever done so and will continue to do so. And because of the way that we do career and we do living, we are an increasingly lonely culture. There is a growing missional opportunity for a church that can cultivate deep relationships where people say, I want a place to belong. I need community. And it's not just, it's not just some of those things that we will continue to do, like small groups or caring for one another, or even some of the stuff that's happened over the past year or so, men's and women's, and some of the women's stuff that's been birthed this year has been phenomenal. This summer and this fall, there's been a core leadership team doing some great things, and that's a part of how people connect in and get to know one another on that first level, and I'm saying I want us to keep pushing even deeper than that. And so the invitation for you is to commit to place and people. If you don't feel like you can commit here, that's fine. Commit somewhere. Push against the cultural narrative and commit to people in place. And one of the best ways to do that is to eat more food. <laughs> We're going to keep talking about that. It's very simple. Eat together. Have a cup of coffee together. Get together with people. One, two, ten, doesn't matter. Eat together. Commit to people again and again. My hope is that we can be the kind of church where a single person finds family. And there's belonging for everyone, married or single, kids or no kids, any age. We're going to cultivate community, and secondly, we have seen this again and again. There's a passion here and in our leadership to impact Vienna and the wider community. We talk about in our vision and values being for Vienna, seeking the welfare of the place that God has called us, and that includes not leaving. But that includes some of the strategies that we've already seen unfolding in what we are doing. You know, God has given us uh, the ability to punch beyond our weight, if you would, to have an impact in student ministry, particularly with high school students. Do you know there have been kids who have come to faith, high school kids who have come to faith, and tons of them are growing. There are high school kids who are far more mature in their faith than many of you adults. It is a gift because they push us. Wow. And I want us to keep pushing in that. And that's been our partnership with Young Life. That's been the small groups that kids have gotten into. That has been the interns and fellows that you guys have helped support. But in the next 10 years, I want us to see us reaching more kids, more schools. We've had an impact here in Madison, but not really at Oakton or Marshall or other schools nearby. How can we push out and continue to reach that next generation so that they grow up and are the ones leading us in the years to come? The other way that I think God has, has uniquely placed us to impact Vienna is with the Latino community. You know, it starts off with two things. One has been a need. There's been a need because there's an entire community on our edges all around who are new, who don't speak the language. Some of them do, and it's, it's a challenge. And we have had a heart of pe a people here with a heart for this and some doors that have been opened. We've had the unique blessing of this relationship with Chile where we have had Spanish-speaking missionaries coming here, staying here, to minister to Latino families. 
we've had our, you guys being willing to see this through. And look, my aim in that, it's not just build up a bunch of programs. We may have programs in that relation, but it's relationships. These missionaries are doing relational ministry. We're calling you into relationship with people who don't necessarily look like you, don't speak the same language. Down the line, you know what would be beautiful is if we could see people in each other's homes crossing the Spanish-English divide where Spanish-speaking families are caring for the needs of English-speaking families, where people on both sides are known by each other. Okay, you may not speak Spanish. I don't. You may not have high school kids or a heart for them. You want to stay away from them. They scare you. Good reason for that. But you know what you do have? You have the third thing that I think we're called to in this Impact in Vienna. It's you have neighbors. One of the things we have seen is that we are a church that is involved in the lives of the people around us, and we are called into that deeper. To be involved in the lives of the people on our streets, in our cul-de-sac, in our apartment building, or in friends that are outside the church, this church, any church. To be deeply involved and committed to people. Not inviting them to your church or your program, but inviting them into your life and you stepping into theirs. That is part of our missional calling to impact this community. It is students, it is the Latino community, and it's literally you and me with our neighbors, with people we're friends with that don't necessarily buy into this Jesus stuff. Maybe they do, it doesn't matter. We just love the people around us. And lastly, we're called to I'm not sure what. So I will have to say, um, I was a little disappointed in God um, this summer. You shouldn't say that as a pastor, but um, I was hoping that in the midst of seeking God, discerning God, that some of you would come with things that, that the Lord put on your heart that would be a new and fresh thing that we haven't already been doing, that we're just being called into new. I was like, okay, Lord, I trust that you can speak to other people besides me, and I still do, but I think we're still waiting on what else God wants us to be doing. And so we wait, saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And one of the things related to impacting Vienna is the way that I try to frame it in my own head as I seek the Lord, which is this. When Christ returns, right, when Christ returns, he will right all wrongs and bring about his shalom and flourishing and peace. What will Vienna and this wider community look like when Christ returns? What will not be here that currently is, because God says, no, that does not belong in my eternal kingdom. And what is here that will be elevated and say, yes, this is a good thing and deserves to last? Let's have that vision for this community and say, Lord, how can we push into that? How can whatever we choose to do as a church change the narrative of this town? This town has values. This town has things that emphasizes how can what we do where we put our time, our money, our life, change the narrative of this community. And I want us to dream. How can we impact this place and the people around it? So three things to finish. Over the next decade, we have an identity that we're gonna continue to foster, an identity of humility and grace, of being welcoming, a refuge, crossroads, a confluence, 
We need to remember and nurture that identity of humility and grace. And we have a calling. We have a calling to impact Vienna and to cultivate community far deeper than we have up to this point. And that means you continuing to discern and listen to God's calling on you. You committing to and eating with people. You and me willing to die to build something bigger than us. We have a telos. That's my favorite Greek word to always throw at you guys. It's our end goal to be a city on a hill. An alternate city, an alternate cross-centered city within this city. A place of hope for all people and for us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, it is not by accident that we are here. Whether it's for the first time showing up at Christ Church Vienna or since before we began eight years ago, you have called us to this place. And life is not easy and life together is not easy, but you are the Lord who died and rose again. And we stand on the hope of the resurrection and the return of Christ. And until that day, you have called us to live here in community and in a community. May we be the alternate city in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.